Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to A History in Technicolor. Ooh, well done. Thanks, I am Wolf O'Neill and this is... David Crowther. Who you may have heard from other podcasts. Possibly. Perhaps, but maybe not. Today we are talking about Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. The 1962 uh, David Lean film. It's We've been waiting for this moment since we started, have we not? Yes, and I, and I hope the audience has been waiting with bated breath for I, us to tackle this film. I hope not too baited, otherwise they'll be dead. <laughs> yes. Is that what it means? I guess so. Anyway, there you go. Uh, yes, get on with it. Um, okay, so <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia is Very based good. on the life of T.E. Lawrence, a British officer, an archaeologist, and a writer, and it follows his involvements in the Arabian Peninsula during World War I. On behalf of the British Army, he helped unite the Bedouin people and aid their revolt against the Ottoman Empire en route to the creation of the Arab National Council, which was an alliance of once-warring Arab tribes that had been ruled by the Ottomans for 400 years. Why have I selected this film, you ask? Why have you selected this film, Wolf? Because it is generally considered a masterpiece and is potentially the greatest historical epic ever put to the screen. And, and we know it is, so should we just stop the show now? Well, no, 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 because this is... Oh, I think, think we, we have to go right? into it. I oh, think you we, do? Oh, okay. Fine. I think we have to analyse that. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And if it is deserving of that place, then we have to really explain why it is. Okay, fair enough. Um, it's directed by one of the... It really is the greatest film ever made, though, isn't it? Sorry, carry on. I'm interrupting you. It's an outrage. Rude. Um, <laughs> it's directed by one of the best directors ever uh, in David Lean, uh, and it gave Peter O'Toole his first big break, which he never looked back from. By the way, can I put a quote in there? I know I shouldn't be, because we said wouldn't do it. said, from Noel Coward, observed of Peter O'Toole, he's so pretty, it should be called Florence of Arabia. 
Isn't that funny? Oh, I thought it was really funny. (laughs) It is quite funny. Um, Okay, carry on. Pardon me. Classic Noel. Yeah. Noel's house party. Um, The film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won seven, including Best Score, Cinematography, Editing, Sound, as well as Best Picture and Best Director, making David Lean the only British director to ever win the award twice. Is that right? No one else has ever done it, and he won it for uh, Bridge on the River Choir as well, which was three years prior. Good golly, Miss Molly. And which, of course, we must do as well. Yes. Yeah. And, David, I hope you noticed this. It was written by Robert Bolt. I noticed that. His first ever oh. screenplay. After the triumph that is A Man for All Seasons, which you hated, didn't you? Yeah, but he wrote A Man for All Seasons, the f- screenplay, after this. Right. So he'd wrote the, he? he wrote the play for Man for All Seasons. Oh, interesting. This was his first screenplay ever. Uh-huh. And then he would do the screenplay for... Because right. it was 1968, yeah. the film. So yeah. he would do that screenplay at a later date. Cool. And this was 1962, wasn't it? Yes. Say that, yeah. um, so I thought that would make you excited. Yeah, yeah, very interesting, that. Just a tiny little bit of the history. In 1915, the situation between the Allied countries and the Arab countries was tense. Uh, and the Ottomans were growing in strength. Uh, with many Arabs joining them as well. They were actually joining up with that army. Uh, Sharif Hussein, the Emir of Mecca, negotiated with Britain to lead an uprising against the Ottomans in exchange for an independent Arab state that included Syria and Mesopotamia. This would help reduce the threat to the Suez Canal for the British. Hussein threatened to join the Ottomans otherwise if if they didn't allow this. Um, And Britain mostly agreed, but then behind closed doors, they uh, divvied up all the land, gave it to France, um, and they were called kind of cheated them a bit. Lawrence was involved in quite a lot of espionage, mapping, research and analysis of plans prior to this. And when the Arab Revolt begins in 1916, uh, Lawrence goes in to meet the leaders and it's there that he concludes that Hussein's son Faisal is their best leader and the one who's going to inspire success. Um, That's quite interesting. I hadn't actually realised for my sins that Faisal is the son of the king, not the king. Yeah, no, he had three sons. Uh Uh-huh. And Lawrence went and met all of them, right? And basically interviewed them, figured out what they. And he discovered that Faisal had the most right. fire, right, and the most conviction for the revolt. So he went back and told the British, and they were like, "He's the one that will, cool, will follow." Well, that's interesting. Um, and then obviously he started working on strategy, organizing, as well as British liaison, and he participated in several uh, engagements personally with with the army. David. What is the film about? Ah, do you know, you warned me again and I failed to think about it. I think it's about obsession. But every film's about obsession. That's such a common answer, isn't it? For me, it's about Lawrence, actually, against the backdrop of the Arab Revolt and the First World War. Well, that's the name of the film, isn't it? That's a really rubbish answer. I've just said it's about Lawrence Lawrence of Arabia. No, but that that is a good point, because in a three and a half hour movie, Mm. which spends so much time dealing with the battle plans and Mm. the revolt and, and the history of the time... It is worth pointing out that it's not really about yes. the the about story Lawrence, that's yeah. going on in the background. It's just about Lawrence. I think it's about his the, the struggle of a person to control his demons, to re- retain his sanity in this extraordinary situation. Yes. I wrote down the personal struggle of a man on a tragic yeah, path yeah. of his own creation. Blimey, we agree. Yes. Shake hands. We're shaking hands, listeners. Listen to that handshake. <laughs> Um, Not good for radio, that. And I thought just on a, on a sub-level, it's about the study of greatness and the mythologising of man. Mm, yeah, that's As good he point, enters yeah. this kind of godlike yeah. status. As he becomes a story rather than a person sort of thing. So, the film. What do we think? 
Right, do you want me to say something? Well, no. uh, I can start. Okay, yeah, I'll start. Yeah, I think you start. I, I, think it, I think it has to be stated that this film is phenomenal. Oh, it's so good. It is. And every time I come to watch it, I th- the same thought yeah. process happens. I oh, feel a little bit anxious. I yeah. look at the running time. Is there enough hours in the day? I'm not sure. Yeah. It should be noted the version we watched is like the full sort of right. three and a half hour. And how many with, times have you seen intervals. it before? A couple of times, probably two, maybe three. Right. Okay. Um, Sorry, I interrupted because actually you were telling people quite something quite interesting about the version. Well, the version we watched is the one where they include the intervals and the overtures and the 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 interval break and everything that kind of would have been set up. It had quite a scary command order, actually. I think yes. is the right word to tell you that you have to listen to the music without the film going on. Otherwise, somebody will come around and break your kneecaps. It is designed to be a viewing similar to what it would have been if you'd gone to the cinema at the time. Uh, I went and watched 2001 recently, and they had that structure again. So you'll sit there and wait while the curtains are closed, and you listen to the score. And then the film will begin at the beginning and then at the So be honest with me. Did you sit and listen to the whole score? I did for the beginning. Right. So I listened to it all the way up until it began. Right. But I will be honest, when I was swapping discs over to the second side... I skipped the music. Okay, well, you're a finer person than me. But the reason I listened to the music, because the score is incredible. It's incredible. The, during the film, obviously, since as I admitted to you, I didn't watch it. During the film, it's just astounding. I mean, the, the music is just genius. And, I mean, and, words fail me. <laughs> but if, if, you let, if you let it start building up during the, yeah. the bit where the screen is black, you start to think to yourself, oh, you start looking at that skip button. Right. But as the score builds... Your hand pulls away from the remote, and right? you suddenly start to hear the rousing nature, and suddenly you realise, no way, I, I can't wait. This is this is going to be truly remarkable. I, I, I'll go back and listen to the beginning bit as well. But yes, I mean, it's so good at enhancing your emotions as you watch. And it's not just that big tune, which of course is brilliant. It was like I was there. It was so hot in this room all of a sudden. The haze on the horizon. Uh, The sand in my eyes. I don't want to do this anymore. But yeah, it's not just that music. It's all throughout. The score's incredible. And it's not just that. It's the the shots, the images, the spectacle. Um, I suddenly feel like I've betrayed myself by watching it on television, like on a DVD. I desperately want to go to a cinema and watch it again one week later. That is good. We need to do that. We need to to make a resolution now. I should. That that is what we're going to do. They showed it last year, I think, or a year or two ago at the BFI in its full version. I really should have gone. Do that. I mean, that is, it's one of those traditional things, isn't it, where the the desert is one of the characters. Yeah, I know people say that, you know, it's other characters, this or that. But it really is in this. The desert is a character. Uh, David Lean <clears throat> took them, the film crew out to... Essentially, he wanted to go into the wilderness. Mm. And he went to parts of the world that had barely been visited, maybe not even mapped, mm. to try and get like out into the middle of absolutely right. nowhere to film. Um, he wanted to capture images on screen that had never been captured right. before. And the desire to give us this spectacle, including the natural landscape kind of really dominating that, yeah, uh, it's it's clear from the beginning. Yeah, and God does he manage it. I mean, it's just amazing. I honestly think that it's really captivating, kind of from start to finish. Mm. It is very long. Like it does have to be noted, it's very long. But you know, the thing about it is that it really should be longer. Okay, I, an unpopular choice, obviously. My point is that 
Uh, it's so good, it can hardly be long enough. The, the trouble is, I suppose, that it's very much filmed with two parts, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, you really love the first part because uh, it's full of innocence and potential and wonder and discovery. Uh, and then the second half is full of, well, pain. Despair. Con- despair. <laughs> Um, Betrayal. Yeah, absolutely. So in actual fact, by the time it finishes, you are ready, aren't you? Because you've been through all that. I I can see what you mean. If you want it to be longer, it's because you want to discover more. You want to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, You want to kind of solve... Well, you want to know more about the society that Lawrence has gone into, don't you? I now suddenly can't stop wanting to sing... How do you solve a problem like Maria, but substituting Maria for Lawrence? Why do you I don't want... know? <laughs> it's mm. it's an unusual compulsion. I've got, I've got some pills for that, actually. While we quickly talk about the film, just to finish off our initial kind of responses, there is so much of that movie which mm. is just burned into my brain. And every time I see those scenes again, they they just get better. Yeah, and that is the thing, isn't it? You don't get bored of it. Well, this is why I was saying that I, I was introduced to the film when I was a nipper by my father who came to me and said, oh, look, son, you know. And my dad didn't do this sort of thing, okay? So he did it twice in uh, my life. One was for the Battle of Britain. He actually came to school and took me to see the film The Battle of Britain. I said, Dad, what's going on? You know, who are you? Anyway, um, and the second one was this. He sat me down and he said, look at this shot. And it's the famous shot of Ali coming out of the desert. Yes. And so I thought, you know, I've seen that shot so many times. That's, you know, it's not going to do it for me. Well, it kind of does. You know, it's incredible. After all this time, yeah. And what's really interesting is David Lean was a film editor right. for maybe 10 to 15 years prior to starting work with Noel Coward and making Brief Encounter, um, in which we served, etc. Um, so you can tell in a lot of the film that his knowledge of filmmaking techniques, mm. editing, etc., um, is crucial to how he's kind of crafting this. Well, they really cheated with that scene, didn't they? That was the thing that got me. They kind of almost drew a line in the sand to draw, to draw the camera in. Did you see the production thing on the, on the disc? Well, they really messed around with that. They, they, they actually took a trap down and they sort of mowed the sand so you've got this sort of line that leads to Ali coming out of the desert. It, it wasn't straightforward. They didn't just point the camera at the thing. You know, they had to work at it. It's very, very good. Interesting. And that comes not long after that brilliant shot where he lights the match. Oh, that and is then, the world's best cut in the world ever. And then, and Amazing. Then cuts to that yes. blaring sun and the music kicks in. The storming of Aqaba. Storming the, of Aqaba. The, the footage of the, of the battle sequences. As they storm in, it's amazing. Or so many of those shots. It's just the little details throughout the movie mm. are really, really good. And we could spend hours going through every scene, picking out all the little details and the wonderful dialogue uh, in the in the script. It's fantastic. It is. Um, just a few things to note: it was Omar Sharif's first English language role, right? And then he got himself an Oscar nomination for it. So he thought, "This is a doddle." And of course, it's <laughs> Peter O'Toole's first big yeah, break, it's amazing, and he gets isn't an. It? Oscar nomination as well and creates maybe his greatest performance ever. It's definitely his greatest performance, isn't it? Because afterwards, he, you know, he gets a bit hammy, doesn't he? Oh, Peter O'Toole. I'm never quite convinced by Peter O'Toole. The line in winter thing, I always think, mm, kind of overdoes it a bit. And, and, but this he's brilliant in. Yeah, you know, he, he's, he's, he's really good. You know, he's... Should we so, talk about the other actors? Because the other actors are quite fun as well, aren't they? There's so many good ones. So many good ones. Who is... Take Peter O'Toole about it out of it for a moment. Uh, give me... Who is the best actor in Lawrence Arabia with the exception of Peter Rachel? This is really tough. Um got ten seconds. I really think that... Um, is it Nine. Hawkins Eight. that plays Allenby? He's very good, isn't it's he? He's very good. He's very good. He's Although that's a bit of a cheat, his character. But anyway, we'll come to that later. But, but yeah, he's very Alec, good. Alec Guinness is very good. 
I you have I'm to... not sure about Alec Guinness. You know? I'm beginning to see that Alec Guinness is Alec Guinness, isn't he? I mean, you know, yes. he's Alec Guinness. He's Faisal, King Charles I and George Smiley. And Obi-Wan so, Kenobi. And Obi-Wan Kenobi. They're basically the same guy. And we really like that guy. But he's basically Alec Guinness. I'm being harsh, aren't I? I got told off on this online, actually, for saying this. Somebody said to me, rubbish. I said, oh, OK, sorry. I mean, we're not going to go into the career of Alec Guinness, but no. I think if but you... you don't if you think wa- he's channeling the same guy? But possibly. Um, but then after... When you've seen that Bridge on the River Choir has come a few years earlier, he can clearly do yes. a lot of good stuff. Indeed, yes. And he has, a, he has a great presence on the screen, and he gives yes. a lot of... Um, oh, I love Alec A lot of great delivery wrong. of the lines in the film. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Alec Guinness. It's just that there's a little bit of me that says that he kind of does do Alec Guinness. But I love him. True. I, I, Alec, I withdraw, if you're listening now, I withdraw the statement unreservedly. Let, let's move on. Who's the person you think is the best? <laughs> Claude Rains. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Claude Rains is an absolute bloody triumph. He is the absolute epitome of the duplicitous, scheming, urbane diplomat. Isn't he just defines it. Isn't it wonderful when he says that line that's something along, I rather wish I was back in Tunbridge Wells. Yeah, oh, <laughs> just, just, just delicious, you know. An he's so good. In that We're going to talk about him because he's such a fascinating right. character in this. Um, but the performances all round are really, really good. I have a bit of a problem with Anthony Quinn. Okay. The problem with Anthony Quinn is I can't get away from Zorba. You know, every time I see him, I'm seeing Zorba, you know, doing his thing. And ah, you know, it's a bit of a problem. It was very good, but of course that's when you get feel most uncomfortable is where you've got actors sort of blacked up, as it were. You know, you've got Alec Guinness as Faisal, you've got Anthony Quinn Wasn't Anthony as Quinn, Alder. He was born in Mexico, is that right? Is that right? That's what I think I saw, so I'd have to check. Hmm. Um, but obviously, yes, it does happen. But yeah, so you feel, I mean, I know it's a different age. Alec Guinness in particular. You just feel like, yeah, Alec Guinness in particular. It's not as bad, bit. though. I watched um, A Pasha to India, <clears throat> oh, and Alec yeah, Guinness is in that, um, and it, it maybe feels worse. Right. Um, okay, so I can imagine But it. you've got Anthony Quayle. Anthony Quayle. And he's always great. enjoyable as a kind of a supporting character. They do. He does He does very well, doesn't he? The sort of... He is the voice of imperialism, in a sense. In a different sense of Allenby, who's the voice of big imperialism. Anthony Quayle is the voice of little imperialism, in the sense of a cultural... All these Arabs, they're idiots. They don't know what they're doing. We need to just go in and get it sorted. And his, his exasperation at permanently being put down by everyone around yes. him. People who are below <laughs> him, like Lawrence, and people who are above yes. him, like Alabin. He was just to stand there, yes. like, red-faced. Absolutely. It's quite he's... wonderful. I suggest that we go to Lawrence. The okay. movie is about him, okay. and he is the puzzle that we have to try and solve. Yeah. And does the film solve him? And really, it's his journey and everything else kind of just supporting that. The opening quote. Yeah. The reporter runs up to him and is like, tell me about Mr. Yes. Lawrence. And he's like, he's a poet, a scholar, and a warrior. And then the reporter runs off. Yes. And then he turns to his friend and he's like, and a shameless exhibitionist. Yes. Yeah. This reveal that he's he's multiple personalities. Yeah. And to the press and the media, he's one thing. Yeah. In private life, he's another. And you read The Seven Pillars. Or you read some bits. For I read a little bit. For which, you know, I, I'm astounded. Read that quote you read to me earlier. Because it, it is really good. Okay. So, so this comes from the uh, the introductory chapter of... Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It should be noted, first of all, that when he wrote this book, he's redrafted it three times, and he collected all of his notes ready for the story, and then lost them all while changing trains in Reading. Ah. So he had to then rewrite, and he does admit that although a lot of the facts are still present, his memories of the events and the feelings connected with them will be a haze and will be altered. I think there's a you have to really factor in that some stuff changes. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that happening? Let's just go through that. You've written the book. 
you know, it's taking a few years and you lose it on yes. Reading Station. I mean, it's not even a nice station. I wonder who has the manuscript. Does someone throw that in yeah. the bin? If you're out there. <laughs> so here it is. I think this generally sums him up and it also sets up a lot of his aims right. and gives us quite a lot to talk about. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recess of their minds wake in the day to find that it was a vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. This I did. I meant to make a new nation, to restore a lost influence, to give 20 millions of of Semites the foundations on which to build an inspired dream palace of their national thoughts. He's got quite a big opinion of himself, the lad, hasn't he? Yes. He refers to himself as a dangerous man. He talks about all his great ideas, and he refers to it as uh, so high in aim, he says later on. Um, And he very much openly talks about wanting to fight both the Turks and the British. He was regularly undermining the British, not telling them about things, carrying out his missions. And so his ultimate goal Mm. was to get to get them to set up the Arab Council. Yeah. And he knows full well the treaty's been signed at this point. Yeah. That the land is going to be given to France and the British yeah. are going to like um betray their kind of goals. But he thinks that he can do such a good job mm. that the council will run without his yeah. involvement and they will achieve their um freedom essentially and yeah. their independence. So he not only believe he believes that he can beat the British yeah. and give and give the Arabs independence while defeating the Turks all at the same time. Here's, here's another quote: Arabs believe in persons, not in institutions. They saw in me a free agent of the British government and demanded from me an endorsement of its written promises. So I had to join the conspiracy, and for what my word was worth, assured the men of their reward. In our two years' partnership under fire, they grew accustomed to believing me and to think my government, like myself, sincere. In this hope, they performed some fine things, but of course, instead of being proud of what we did together, I was continually and bitterly ashamed. Now, we will go through his book and right. some of his thoughts and how accurate <clears throat> everything is. Bear in mind that some of the stuff in his book doesn't match with his own records in right. his diary. So, to really break <laughs> Are you down... going to read the whole book? No, no. But to, but to break down Lawrence, I think it's important to kind of view... that We've looked at kind of roughly what he's saying, and it's important to consider his own words, but we are talking about the film. So before we ever hear him speak, we're presented with tragedy, which is a foreshadowing Mm. for the rest of the movie. Uh, And a complicated and ambiguous impression of him is created by a variety of well-wishers, most of whom are just desperate to have any claim of knowing him. Mm. Remember that man with like, oh, did you know Lawrence? And he's like, oh, I worked with him once. Uh, All these people pretending to know him, scrabbling to have any piece of this legendary man attached to themselves. He uh, he was a legend and a hero. Um... And can we, we see it from the future, um, it kind of suggests that maybe even by the end of the film, we aren't going to know who Lawrence is. Mm. Because that's kind of the last, what would be the last shot of the film if it ran chronologically. Yeah. And we can clearly tell at that point that nobody knows who he was. Yeah. So you're either going to find out mm. or you're not. I think our fascination with and desire to understand him drives us through the film, captivating and revulsing us Mm. in kind of equal measure. When introduced, he's quite childish and arrogant, elitist. He refers to the British people as fat people while declaring himself different Mm. and superior. He's very aware of his own difference. And in that bit where he goes up to Allenby and said, it's my manner, sir. Yes. You know, it's, it's both deeply irritating and rather impressive at the same time, you know. His intellect is the source of his power. I particularly noted that when he gets this mission, which he obviously works himself up to, he says it's going to be fun. 
He's yes. very excited to go to the desert and right. start this revolution. I think that he is really hard to like for, for almost any part of the movie. Where he, he sets off for the desert and he's foolhardy, but he is successful. You know, I've never even considered whether I liked him or not. Is he the kind of guy that you consider in that way? He's too big, I, mean, I suppose, if you'd meet him, then of course you'd, uh, you'd consider that. I think, but the trouble is, he's your central character. If you hate him, absolutely yeah. hate him, it's quite hard to but follow he's too agonised to hate, isn't he? He's too kind of open and honest and agonised to hate. So it's his, his conflict makes him quite captivating and engaging, yeah. but his kind of moral compass is really wavering. They like to give you lots of scenes early on where he, he saves that man from the desert. Mm. And he's like, history is not written. We, yeah. you know, we write our own stories. And, and you feel this, you're, you're kind of spurred on by yeah. his brilliance. That he can, this man who shouldn't be able to... Yeah, can bend the world to his all. But that's the, that is what the film is about, isn't it? That he cannot bend the world to his will in actual fact. And that's surely what creates the agony in him, that he realises that he isn't a god. And actually, maybe that's what the film's about. It's not about obsession. It's about the fact that we are, in the end... The victims of fate. We cannot control it. There's, a, there's an interesting quote where somebody says he thinks himself a prophet, mm. and he then compares himself to Moses mm. when he crosses Sinai. Right. Yes, the suggestion no one can cross Sinai except yeah. for maybe Moses, and he's like, yes. "Well, I guess yeah. I can do that." <laughs> I, I just feel that the result of his superiority complex is a series of victories and tragedies. Mm. Um, and he always just believes he's the only one who's capable of kind of achieving all of this. Too simple, though, isn't it? Because his superiority complex definitely breaks down, doesn't it, by the end? It does break down, but he creates a legacy that can never die. But he's, it's not the legacy he wanted. You know, he wanted a legacy where there was an independent, independent Arab nation. Um, he doesn't achieve it. In the end, he's a failure. So, am I right, David, that you are saying that because he's fallible and he fails and breaks down... That that makes him a more likable character. Um, not necessarily. I think he's likable because he's complicated and he goes through agonies. I think the thing is that you see his journey through the film from it, this believing he's a prophet, he's infallible, he's different from everybody else, and he cannot lose to somebody who realizes actually um, he's not, and that's why he kind of breaks down and says, "I've had enough. I can't do it. I've, please let me stop." And then Allenby sends him back in, and he wants to end that by then because the conflicts are too great for him. He can't manage them i guess i think what i'm trying to get at is are you do you see him as a character that you dislike from early on no that from the beginning he has these two grand and ideas and he's too meddling and too egotistical and no. narcissistic to ever achieve any of what he's trying no. to achieve i'm a i'm a compliant person right i feel what i'm supposed to feel feel when the filmmaker tells me to feel this i do it so, and so how do you I, feel at the end then? So at the, the end I feel I feel sympathy for a man who has discovered his own mortality. Interesting. I do feel sympathy yeah. for him. The fact that he's such a well-developed and rounded character means that you have to feel all these kind of conflicting yeah. emotions about him, which is great. So how do you feel about him at the end of the... I think when I, well, I hadn't seen the film in a while, so I think I just kind of... I knew that he was the hero and I kind of maybe had forgotten how evil his acts are. Mm. Obviously, the imperialism and the influence of the British military kind of threw him in this watch um, makes him more questionable as a character to me. Mm. His knowledge of kind of what's going to happen. I feel quite uncomfortable watching him give all these weapons to them and then inspiring this revolt and then trying to leave whenever it gets rough and just leave them to it. Yeah. 
Uh, he would leave partway through the movie. He wouldn't even get to Damascus and give them the Arab Council. He wants to go home. But the British military see yeah. the advantage of keeping him in and they make him keep fighting. Obviously, a tragedy for him. Yeah. But it's a war. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. It's a war, but I it's mean, a war that he's even. desperate to have. Yes, true. He he loves the war. Yeah. And as as the film goes on, I think of it more as you're seeing the real person in him pulled yeah. out rather than war corrupting an, like an honest and yes. I think you're absolutely right but he says individual. that himself well in the film he does anyway he said because of that famous quote where he said there was something I didn't like and what was that um, I killed a man yes and I liked it and that absolutely central to the film is the fact that he discovers in himself something that he really doesn't like yeah I, I think it comes right from the beginning though like really early on so even when he's having these little victories and he's proving himself uh, really great. I, I just feel there's this level of um, in self-importance which I can't get past. His desire to tell the Arab people that they are little people and that Great Britain is small but it is great. But when he says you're little people, he's goading them into a course of action. I don't believe he thinks they're little people. No, I, I believe, believe he, he does. You need, you can do these things and I am going to goad you to do them. But, re- but remember when when Ali kills that man by the well, he's not speaking like politics. When he's yelling at, at Ali and he's talking about him being a, a barbarous people and yeah. he's saying all this slander about Arabs, that's his deep feelings just coming out in these bursts of emotion mm. that he can't control and his anger. And I think that's him throughout. Yeah. His his arrogance and his self-entitlement gets all the people closest to him killed. Mm. And he does realise what he's doing, but that boy dies because... Yeah. He thinks Absolutely. he's Moses. Yes, indeed. And that, that I totally agree. But for me, he is redeemed by the fact that he's aware of these things. And that's what kills but him. But isn't that... Yeah, but I think... That's even why if, he wants to get out. Because he realises he's doing things here that he can't control. That his arrogance has led him into the situation. And his hubris has led him into a situation where people are dying because of what he's doing. And also, he is seeing the beast inside of himself. And I do believe he gets trapped. And I do think he is a tragic hero. So I don't completely dislike him. But I question his motives and his methods through the first half of the mm. movie. And in the second half of the movie, it's increasingly hard to watch while he's screaming, no prisoners, no prisoners. Yeah. And he's murdering people. Yeah. At the beginning of the movie, he, he loves to throw around the Geneva yes. Convention and all these rules of yeah. war and how he talks about how great the British army is and how the Arab army is nothing. He does have some respect for them, but it's always in the knowledge that he and Britain yes, is better. True. Always. Absolutely. And that imperialism just great. Yes, absolutely. Although, for me, this is a post-imperialist movie. You, we've had Suez in 1956. Britain has been told by America and the world, the world no longer dances to your tune. And Britain's slowly beginning to come to terms with that. And we were in the middle of the... You know, decolonization. Countries around the world say, no, actually, we're not going to have this. We're going to be free, whether you like it or not. So, and for me, the way this presents imperialism is very negative and presents yes. the, you know, the British arrogance is very negative. It, We've got the people in the films, we're talking about characters in the film. For me, the characters in the film that come off worse are the British officers. Yes. That innate feeling of superiority, the duplicity of Allenby and Claude Rains, whatever the name of his character was, the Sykes-Picot Treaty and that, you know, that appalling portrayal, it doesn't, it doesn't allow either you, the listener, or Lawrence to get away with uh, an idea that the British are, in fact, superior. No, I, I do agree. 
I think obviously though Lawrence does represent their voice. Yeah. He is their voice to to the Arab people and to us in many ways. And as much as he opposes the British military, and I know that he does, he still works with them and he still mm. represents a lot of their beliefs like quite a lot of the time. Mm. I do agree. I think the movie possesses a distasteful view of the British military. Yeah. Um, and Allenby is clearly the villain. And Mr. Dryden, which is nice, Claude Rain's yeah. character, is the chief architect, yeah, as absolutely. Faisal calls he him. The and he even says to him, he even says himself, I'm a man who tells lies. Yeah. And he's this secret manipulator. I kept thinking of him like a Blofeld or somebody because right. he sits there, yes. minds his own business says these funny remarks yeah. and makes these quotes, but you know that he is yeah, orchestrating yeah. everything. Well, Allenby is, is, is as bad, though, because Allenby, as soon as anything gets difficult and he gets challenged, he says, oh, I'm just a soldier. I don't get to decide yeah, exactly. There is Exactly. There is one defence, of course. I mean, I think this is absolutely right, and it uh, quite rightly paints imperialism for what it is. However, it is worth remembering, and on the line as I looked around looking for Arabic, Arab and Turkish voices. Quite a lot of people made the point that they are in the middle of a war here and in wars you do what is required. Okay. Well, we still briefly talk about the prejudice yeah. and racism because we yes. were bringing it up. Here are just a few quotes to kind of support okay. what we've been talking about yeah. and the kind of the view of the British military. Um, Faisal has this really great line where he says, the English have a great hunger for desolate places. Yes. Which is really good. And clearly Faisal is often saying maybe what the kind of point of view of the movie is. Yeah. Uh, he's this kind of watcher. Yeah. I know that he's in charge, but Lawrence is really leading his army. So yeah, right. especially when he comes to meet the British military, that's usually when he kind of reveals yeah. a lot of perhaps the movie's feelings. Yeah, he manages him. to get a sort of level of detachment, although he gets, you know, the passion as well at certain points. But yes, you're right, I can see that. Uh, and I just thought that it was really interesting. Also, what you were talking about the Suez Canal, that it's the it's the focal point of the film, really. Yeah. Well, that's another amazing shot. I know I'm taking you out of the... What, the, the, the ship? The ship, that's an amazing image. And isn't it interesting that that comes right at the yeah. the interval part of the movie, that everything's leading kind of to the yeah, Suez Canal. To point, yeah. And the Suez Canal is it's the same as Charles Light Brigade. It's the reason they're doing all of this. Yeah. They need the Suez Canal. Yeah, that's and that's right. the reason that they come up with this treaty to prevent um, this free Arab state, because... They want to hold on to their lands, and yeah. France is too worried about other countries gaining too much power. And yeah, stuff. you're right. It's all about Suez, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think we're all agreed that they're really, it's really critical of the mm. British military. And one of the things that would be good to talk about is the Orientalism yes. aspect of the movie, and is it because there's that tradition, isn't it, of the exotic East, which gets a whole load of racial stereotypes get tied up in. So, possibly a little bit of fun facts afterwards. Um, I think. The reporter, Lowell, I think was his name, Yeah. Um, he set up a lot of exhibitions around the world displaying lots of the photographs that he'd taken from the the war coverage. Yeah. And obviously people in London and America were fascinated by this mystical land. Yeah. And that kind of led to them noticing Lawrence mm. um, and led to him kind of becoming famous. They right. saw these photos of him. They became obsessed with Lawrence. Right. The newsreels obviously started talking about him. And it led to them taking loads of publicity photos. Right. They got him back in his robes back oh, in England, right? yeah. so they could take these photos right. because they realised he was this fascinating, was thing that mysterious yeah. Yeah. man. And I even think that he might have gone on some world tours himself. Right, but I, I can't be certain about that. So I thought, though, that it's kind of a fifty-fifty thing, the film itself, because you know, in some ways, it shows the Arabs being preyed on by outsiders, by Turks. It for the most part the Arabs represent good, you know. Yes. They're not. It's it's Ali who says we mustn't 
murder all these Turks. Just go around them, Lawrence. It's Lawrence who says, no prisoners, kill them. He orders the, the charge. Yep. There's respect for Islam and the Quran. There's no dissing of this, this different religion. You know, there's, they read from the Quran in the tent. It's all very respectfully done. Faisal is, a, is noble, intelligent, wise as a character. The Bedou are shown, I think, in a positive light. It's just that they're, they're different. But on the other hand, you know, Faisal is blacked up. And there's lots of feuding amongst the Bedou. You know, they're shown as fractious and all the rest of it. So, I mean, you know, this is, not, this it, is going to lead me on to the yeah. historical accuracy. I think it is I think it is really important and I think um uh, I'm slightly skeptical about being too critical of it mm. because I do think it gives a really varied perspective and I do think that the the viewpoint of the film is from Lawrence. Mm. Um we can't ever forget that and yeah. as a result everything else is background. Um I really love the line that um Ali gives back to him mm. when the reporter comes up and he's like what have you done? And Ali's so angered, he turns and he goes, surely you knew that the Arabs were a barbarous yes, people. Yeah. Even though he f- he's telling Lawrence yeah. that he is a barbarous man. Yeah. But he's essentially just trying to let the world know that, yes, this is what they always thought yeah. the Arabs were. Yeah. Like, Lawrence is evil. Lawrence has done these terrible acts. And he, he's almost reaffirmed this racist stereotype mm. yeah. that everybody had prior to the movie. Yeah. Um, the movie never hides from its racism. Mm. My only concern is how much, um, how much good it does, kind of comparatively. Mm. I know it shows all the British to be racist. There's the scene where they uh, that man punches Lawrence yeah. when he's wearing his robe. Yes. I don't know why he can't tell, yeah. but he punches Lawrence in the face, and then later on he shakes his hand in the bar yeah. and he has no idea. And he's don't you remember me? And he's yeah. like, no, I'd remember if I met you, Mister Lawrence. Like he yeah. thinks this guy's amazing, yeah. but when he's wearing robes, he, he's nothing yeah. to him. Yes, indeed. Uh, obviously, there's the scene where they won't let Lawrence into um, yeah. Cairo, and the boy they're trying to kick him out of the yeah. mess. That mess yeah. is maybe the most yeah, lavish so mess I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> also, no one's ever doing any work. They're all playing pool. Yes, and drinking pink gin. And they're like, no, you, you can't give this boy any lemonade. Yeah. Like, it's a really key moment. Yeah, but I think that it's important to note this. The film was banned in every Arab country. How was it? Except for Egypt, yeah, where Omar Sharif is from, right. because of its disrespectful portrayal of Arab culture. And almost whatever I say after that... Mm. Part of me is like, if yeah. all Arab countries That's saw the movie yeah. and thought it was disrespectful, mm. then it probably is. Yeah, and I don't really think that there's too much to criticise about that in general. Yeah, so argue that, I thought that was really interesting. Mm. That somewhat surprised me. The amount of times it talks down to the Arab people through the British voices yeah. while talking about how great Britain is, yeah, and then showing them in, in quite a bad light in a lot of ways. I don't think they do show them in a bad light, unless you believe uh, that a tribal structure is intrinsically bad. But there's one key moment in the film where I think the film really does let itself down and historical accuracy down, which is in the Damascus. Damascus is actually run by the Arabs for two years. And in the film, it's run for three days and the British sit there and they say, oh, it's going to fall to pieces. And it duly does fall to pieces. Yeah, and they it look, makes it look like they've committed war crimes. Yeah, that really is a betrayal of that colonial... That council ran for two or three years. Yeah. And only they only stopped running because the French invaded. Indeed. For me, that was the really bad inaccuracy in the movie. But do you not think just throughout the movie, scattered, mm. when we, especially when we talked about The Last Emperor, that there are so many scenes where Lawrence has put at odds with them, which is... You completely understandable. Yeah. He's very different. But whereby they present to him something that they would do. 
Yeah. And he tells them, I'm not going to do that. I don't agree with you. Yeah. And then he does something different. Yeah. For example, they, they leave that man behind in the desert because he gets lost. Yeah. And Lawrence is like, you're terrible people, essentially. I'm not going to leave this man behind. Mm. I'm going to save him. But then the man dies. And no, then, his man is killed. And then there's the scene where, obviously, they have to fight. And then they're like, well, we now have to kill him. I know Lawrence shoots the man, but... He, he really See, clearly disapproves of, he of the loss of what they're doing. But what I took that to mean is a different view of life. And that, in actual fact, by having Lawrence kill the man, I thought the film said, look, here's this arrogant British bloke saying, no, no, this is what you've got to do. You've got to go back and get this man. I thought the film was saying, look how arrogant that was. Look how stupid that was. We think we're so great. It led to the same place. That I, that's what I thought the message of that whole sequence was about. And, and I do debagging. Think, I do think that's the that's the overall message that probably that he thinks he's mm. right, and then they kind of, kind of proved to be wrong. But I still can't help but feel that both times, a it puts him centre stage. He's still in charge of everything. He decides who lives and dies. Maybe, but it would seem to me that would only hold water if, at the end of the film, the Arabs were proved to be wrong, or and they admitted that they were wrong. At the end of the movie, they are shown to have integrity. You don't go away thinking, oh, God, the Arabs really screwed that up, didn't you? You go away thinking, my God, weren't the British duplicitous and didn't they let the Arabs down? I do agree, but I, I still think that there's, there's just enough in there, the little, the little mm. bits, those little details, which just are there mm. to remind us that they're, they're different and that they will never be like them. And, and I just feel the overwhelming amount of kind of um, negative talk about right. them from the British... And even from Lawrence, he can be so dismissive of them right. uh, and really can often suggest that they would be nothing without him. Maybe this is where, uh, you know, it's about Heisenberg's principle that you can't watch something without affecting it. But maybe so, it's where you and I start from differently yes, in the but way we view things. with the historical accuracy, Anthony Quinn's character, I think his name is Aouda. Aouda, yeah. Yes. His family sued the film company yes. for how terribly they portrayed him. Yeah. He's presented as greedy, um, violent only out of it for money yeah. and goods and rewards. He was their, one of their most important influential leaders, yeah. strategizers. He helped plan the assault on Aqaba with Lawrence and Faisal. Yeah. And uh, it's not even remotely like right. what he was supposed to be. So that just seems unnecessary. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, uh, you know, like I've already said, like the film is from Lawrence's perspective. It's from this arrogant white saviour's perspective. Yeah. That's always going to throw some kind of light on things. One guy, Alexander Corder, says um, that the inaccuracy misses the point that it's appropriate and true to the text of the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is the point you're making that yes. this in the end is about Lawrence. Uh, but you're right. To present Aouda in such a negative way, was it necessary? You know, that's the question you have to ask. You know, Why did you have to do that? Couldn't you have portrayed him as he was? <laughs> but a key point here, and this is one of yeah. Lawrence's own quotes... This is a history not of the Arab movement, but of me in it. Right, okay. He says that in The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and the, the film's going to follow that. Yeah. Uh, the film is all about this character. An early draft of the script Yeah. Um, covered the more political events, the wider kind of context and everything. But they've taken all of that out. And there are long scenes with not much right. plot and stuff happening. It's, it's just about this one man's journey. And we know the film's not really about how the Arabs... Uh, carried out their yeah. revolt and got all the way to Damascus is really about Lawrence's journey. But in terms of historical accuracy, I have to say it's fairly inaccurate. I think that's partly because Seven Pillars of Wisdom is a little bit inaccurate, yeah. but also the, f the film is kind of using that as a loose structure. 
Um, obviously, he'd already been really active in the desert for a while. Um, in the movie, he's, it's like his first time yes. into the desert. He's been on espionage missions for a couple of years now, yeah. and he's already gone and he's met Faisal and everybody long before any of this. So the events don't really quite play out like that. Yeah. A lot of responsibility is put on Lawrence, suggesting he did everything on his own. But in actual fact, he was one of the last British officers to arrive. There was a whole bunch there. They led the train attack missions before him. They did quite a lot of those interactions, and right. he wasn't the first to do any of them. I know in the movie, Anthony Quayle is the only other one who's there. There's like six or seven people, and Lawrence was one of the later ones to arrive. A lot of events are conflated for dramatic purposes, e.g. Gassim's rescue and execution. One man was rescued, yeah. and another man was executed. Ah, I see, right. And they were converted into was one event. doubly interested that they converted that into the same person. Then. Obviously, Sheriff Ali doesn't exist. He's yeah. a whole bunch of different people who are conflated into one right. man and given a new purpose, so he's a composite character. In the movie, it's only Bedouin, but in real life, there was a whole bunch of Arab soldiers from the army. Yeah. They rescued from POW camps, who then fought with them. Yes, I noticed that, that, that actually there are a whole load of regular Arab forces. It's not just the Bedou, as it were. It's... The, the movie tries to make them seem even more different from us, Absolutely. and really ramshackle, which makes Lawrence's powers even more magical. Allenby was a great man in Lawrence's eyes, and they were yes. really good friends. Interesting. That was most interesting. When Allenby <clears> said, <throat> when Lawrence died, I have lost a good friend and a valued comrade. Lawrence was under my command, but after acquainting him with my strategical plan, I gave him a free hand. His cooperation was marked by the utmost loyalty. I never had anything but praise for his work, which was indeed invaluable throughout the campaign. I mean, maybe Allenby is also glossing things and saying something for the public, but if that's true, it casts a very different light on... But in reality, they did stay in contact for years. Mm. Lawrence, in his own book, there are loads of quotes about how he talks about how great Allenby is. Mm. And they stayed friends and they corresponded for many years after the war. And a lot of people have actually discussed how much Lawrence was aware of Britain's plans. No one really knows when he found out about the treaty. But it seems to you know, from what you've said in the Seven Pillars, he, he, he admits it. He's up front. He says, he, I misled them for a reason to make them more effective. He, he does know, but I think just in terms of the timeline, at what point yeah. does he find out? Right. At what point does he start to lie to them? Yeah. Like, where does this come into effect? Remember in the movie, Faisal yeah. knows about the treaty and Lawrence pretends he doesn't know? Yes, indeed, yeah. He says to Allenby, um, you've lied most courageously. And, and in actual fact, in the film, very strongly gives the impression... That, that Lawrence knew. That, well, I thought it gave the impression that Lawrence himself has been betrayed. Oh, OK. He's been let down by Dryden and, and Allenby. Faisal says in that scene that Lawrence is a better liar because he's more He Arab. does, but you don't necessarily uh, no, believe him. It's interesting. Yeah. I do think it's worth pointing out. The timeline of history and events is often inaccurate. A big one that people seem to complain about is the complete inaccuracy of the date when America joined the war. Right. They're just wrong by a number of months. Is that right? Yes. Okay. They, they, they say a time when they've joined and they have a clear time period right. when they're in and it's months do they say that America oh. found the Enigma machine? No. <laughs> Sorry, I'd like to apologise to any Americans listening. And then this is where it gets really... Getting over it and working. Well, OK, another fact. For example, um, in The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, Lawrence will write, obviously, that he journeyed from Aqaba to the Suez Canal uh, and did it in, like, 49 hours with no sleep. But in his own journal and notes, it took him 70 hours and he had lots of sleep. Um, <laughs> OK. So he's contrary to his own, some of his own That's facts. That's a bit of a giveaway, then. Yeah. So you do have to... Then it kind of puts other things in question. Yeah. But this is the biggest thing. The film was hated by and sued by almost everyone involved. Mm. Um, Allenby's family, Auda's family, um, Sheriff Ali's family, the, the people yeah. who were related to him. Um, Lowell Thomas, the reporter, disagreed with 
the right. entire representation of the event, except for the attack on the train. Right. He said, th- they often talk about how Lawrence was nothing like that, events were nothing like that. Right. All these people who were there in the event were like, no, this is terribly wrong. Allenby's family took particular grief with the, f- the way that he's portrayed as not wanting to help at the end yeah. in Damascus. And that he just wants, he said, I'm just yeah. a soldier. He just wants to leave all these people to like, yeah, He wanted die. to fail, yeah. Yeah. Um, they were like, no, that's not even remotely true right. for what it was like. And I think that what we're seeing is is this um, complete kind of tossing aside of historical accuracy right. for story. Which, again, is that what the, the quarter quote said, that the object was to produce not a faithful docudrama that would indicate the audience, but a hit picture. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an adaptation. Which is the refuge of the scoundrel throughout the fil- history of film. Also, I think it's it's hard not to. We've gone from this is the greatest movie by the greatest director to sca- the word scoundrel. How has this happened? No, but I'm gonna we're gonna come back to where it's the greatest okay. film ever. <laughs> I just think it's worth noting. Obviously, you're adapting a very egotistical man's book. Yeah. Where he is going to. Um, aggrandise himself to, to the highest order possible. But that, it's a little hard you saying that because he is very open and honest in the book. And he is, but people have had, a lot of people have had to go through and try and yeah. pick apart the book to work out what's true and what's not because a lot of reports that he makes in the book contradict reports that other people make from the time. But a lot of things also in the book are, are corroborated by... Exactly. No, it's not made up. Yeah. I, th- I think what I'm just saying is, is you've taken this huge event yeah. and you've got one man's perspective. Yes. One man who we know to be narcissistic and an egomaniac. Yeah. And you're going to listen to just his words and then base a yes. whole film off of just Indeed. his yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, and then if, and then once you start changing that, you're then quite far from reality yeah. at that Indeed. point. If you're doing a character study, like this kind of epic tragedy where everything else is kind of background, yeah. you need everything to kind of play into the story. And like we were saying earlier, adjusting Kasim's rescue and then his execution, yeah. conflating that into one event, uh, it's really powerful. We are going to have to end sometime before the sun goes down. So do we need to start drawing things together? I mean, obviously I could talk about Lawrence of Arabia until, you know, the end of time, but... I think we, we just both agreed that for all the historical inaccuracies, it doesn't really I affect our viewing. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I am, and going back to our algorithm, I am very ignorant about that period of history and that, uh, that location of history. And so when I watch the film... I am likely to accept it until we do an exercise like this as reasonably accurate. So it didn't affect my enjoyment, but I think it didn't affect my enjoyment because I was unaware of the inaccuracies. And I I would agree. I wonder if if I watch it again in the future, um, if characters like Auda might... Yeah, frustrate great. me more, more yeah. but it's hard to ignore the way it makes you feel and like the the level yeah. of skill that goes into every part of the film. It's so yeah. cinematic yeah. to its core that. Um, but I think if I knew the history, impressive. yeah, I think it's but inescapable. Then, it overrides the inaccuracy by its the sheer scale of its brilliance. But but if we, I was Faisal watching it, I'd be really cross. Anyway, sorry, Karen. But this is the thing. I, I come back to Amadeus and and Zodiac and other examples. Yes. When, when you're adapting uh, an event, but through the eyes of one person, yes. attempting to go through the eyes of that one person, yes. if that person is flawed and conflicted, and all the things that Lawrence yes. is, then what that's going to give you is this vast, complex story yeah. where you see all these different things at the same time. So it's possible that we're seeing Auda in the way that... Yes, that, that Lawrence saw him. Um, and he, that's the key point. He might point, be needed. Yeah. In terms of the filmmaker's eyes, if they're trying to show the British... 
Aldo is a really good representation, perhaps, of um, our bias. Yeah. What we assume yeah. the Arabs to be. Going to be like, and yeah. then maybe Ali is the kind of character that we're going to try and follow to give us a true understanding of, yeah. of, of what the Arab people are like. Yeah. And that Lawrence is the worst of them all. And I think they're going to have to try and meet expectations and build them up and then break yeah. them down as they try and analyse Britain's general involvement. The scene where Lawrence gets captured, I've read so many conflicting yeah. points about this. So in the film, I didn't notice too much about it. It passed me really? by a little bit. I, I remembered it, but I thought it was relatively tame. Oh, it's the um, key, one of the key, I always thought. I, I could see, but I mean, it was 1962, obviously I've seen so much that yes, like, he was just getting true. like flogged. I was like, yeah. oh, okay. And this, yeah. the, the zoom in on his face, well, he, he does, it's, it's an older style of acting. And the grimaces and the wide eyes yeah. and you're like, oh, okay. So By the way, he, listener. Um, he's in some pain. Uh, Wolf is giving some examples of the grimaces yes. and wide eyes now, which, you know, you're lacking by not it's, seeing. It's a little bit like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. <laughs> um, Nothing's that bad. I was obviously you start reading about that, and th- that moment impacts him quite a lot afterwards. But I kept thinking to myself, "Well, he's been shot a bunch of times. He's an officer. Like he's been flogged mm. something. Like it, it seems to have too much of an effect on him." Yeah, because the point is, he a he's enjoying it. Isn't that the point? Well, see, these, there's so many conflicting things. So in his own book, he uses language which is quite suggestive of enjoyment, which and masochism, which yeah. is. Interesting. But then there's also suggestions from some analysis that he's exaggerated what happened and even made it up, some of it up. Like, a lot of people can't corroborate some of yes. it. But some people do mention that he, he was different afterwards. Mm. His entire life was changed after that event. And he was never really the same afterwards. Even late in life, he was yeah. quite affected by what had happened to him. The thing that I, I've never been able to resolve is whether the film suggests that the Turkish officer is getting sexual pleasant pleasure from watching. I don't. It. I don't know. And whether it's it actually weird. a rape scene, which obviously, a bit being nineteen sixty-two, they don't they don't well, feel they can show. Well, that was why I didn't notice that he was being sexually assaulted. I think yeah. it is ambiguous, even in the very movie. ambiguous. Yeah. But when I read about it, um, the suggestion is that he was assaulted and possibly even raped. Yeah. And I read that. He obviously sent a lot of correspondence and a lot of his e- um, letters, emails, a lot of his... <laughs> my God, he was ahead of his time. He was a god. A lot of his letters, he, he wrote a letter to George Bernard Shaw's wife. Right. And it, the suggestion seems to be, if you were to read into it, that he succumbed to their advances for his freedom. Right. Um, and that it's it troubles him right. to this day that he kind of that gave his body that. up. Yeah. It, it's a complicated thing, and I don't think it really has a huge impact on him as a person, but I think it's interesting to look at in terms of the fact that the scene appears in the movie, but yeah. we don't really have any definitive answer about what happened. No, we don't. I thought He's the... not clear about what happened yeah. to him. We can't really corroborate with But I think what you, do, what you do unequivocally take away from it is that here is this thing, once again, where he has proved that he can't pull off the impossible, where he is caught, and where he enjoys something in some way which makes him doubt again himself and understand the beast that's himself in himself. Yes. I mean, I do think you can, you can take that from the book, but I'm, I think it's just a really good example of maybe showing that the film is based off of some vague history, some assumptions, some diluted facts. Yeah. And if that's just one scene of which nobody can really yeah. piece together what truly happened, then when you kind of yeah. make that a three-and-a-half-hour movie... There's quite a lot that is yeah. as hazy as the the desert. Kind ah, of impressive. Landscape. Now, look, we need to stop, otherwise, because I can feel my brain dribbling so, out of my ear. the answer, film, rating, 10. 
Well, hang on a sec. Yes, indeed. Uh, film rating, it needs to be 11, doesn't it? I mean, as in Spinal Tap, you need to be able to turn the amp up to 11 for this one. Okay, so we're going 11? Okay, yes, <laughs> 11. That's very brave, does you mean we're getting the top score? That means we've screwed it. This is the well, that's why I wouldn't give it 11, because mentioned. 11 is saying no other film can reach 11, but you... 10 says, in theory, other films could be a 10. Ah, I see. Right? So this is, yeah, that does. So this is the Nadia Comaneci moment. Do you remember Nadia Comaneci? We had this discussion before. Gymnast. Oh, okay. I think it's because I don't listen to you, David. Oh, that could be it. Which is sensible. Romanian gymnast. Got 10 for everything. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. But actually, this is more than Nadia Comaneci. This is, we're going to give it 11. Are we going to give it 11 or are we just going to give it 10? 11 is breaking the rules, isn't it? So so 10. Okay, so we give it a 10. And accuracy, I'm going to say 5. Okay. I was going to give it six. I think you're right. Five. You've convinced me that it's even less accurate than I thought it was. Yeah, I think... I think Five. We've, we've explained Very that. Very good. Last question, then. We were, we're supposed to say for everything, why would you go and see this film? But it's the wrong question in this case, isn't it? The question in this case is, why would you not go and see this film? Yeah. You, what excuse could you possibly have not to go and see this movie? What I would say is not, why should you go watch this film, but why should you go watch this film again? Mm. And why should you go and watch this film on the biggest screen possible? Yeah. Because it really is a work of art yeah. in, in every possible way. And as we've we've been talking about it now, you've seen that a whole bunch of times. I've seen it quite yeah. a few times. The All I wanted to do was go back and watch it again yeah, this week. Absolutely. And on a big screen, so right. I mean, it's a tragedy. I thought three Why and a half... Why is there not a big Last screen? week, I was like, oh, it's three and a half hours long. This is going to be a problem. Yeah. And all I'm now thinking is, can I go and watch that three and a half hours again? Yeah, absolutely. Because I need to look for those little details. Yeah. I want to hear that score on the big screen. Yeah. Amazing. So couldn't agree more. We're blown away. Uh, if anybody really disagrees with the film or yeah. has any other interesting points, then then point them out and we let us know. Love, we would love to hear from you. Before we go, we're going to have to sum up from The Last Emperor. So we're going to... We're going to have a few words about it. Great. Hello, everyone. We're going to follow up on The Last Emperor as per normal, except it's not normal this week because I'm not on my own sitting in the shed all alone and unhappy. This time I've got somebody with me, which is... Me, Wolf. Amazing. So now you're unhappy, but uh, with company. <laughs> that's absolutely true. And not, it's not true at all. So, uh, The Last Emperor, thank you very much, everyone, who gave you feedback. Some really interesting stuff that Wolf is going to talk you through in a moment. In terms of the stats, 50% of you said it's kind of all right. The impression I got was, yeah, this is a great film. People kind of like it, but it didn't really get the blood racing. What did people say, Wolf? Well, first of all, Robert absolutely loved it. He did, didn't he? Huge fan of Bertolucci. Actually, Robert gave some really interesting comments, I thought. Really, really detailed response, which was really interesting. A great discussion about Bertolucci and his career. His opinion is that The Last Emperor is one of the most engaging, beautiful, complex films of its genre and one of the best films ever created. So I love that. I mean, it was great. Robert, feedback every time. You clearly know what you're talking about, which is great. It was really interesting that it inspired Tiffany to look further into the history yeah, and uh, study kind of its impacts, and the, the film kind of got her to go out into the world and Which learn did, more about that. Did me actually as well. Was Tiffany the person who talked about the Soon Sisters? Yes, because that was really interesting. I knew nothing about them, and now I know a little bit about them, which is really good. But contrary to Robert, had a few issues with Bertolucci right. as a person. Indeed, the, the general response is that uh, people like uh, Devon and Yama and everybody thinks that the film is visually stunning. Yeah, this this comes up a lot. It does, yeah, it's and it clear was, even it? when we watched it. But that sometimes people can get a little bit lost in the world and yeah. the story that's going on. Didn't do as great a job explaining the kind of the outside world, possibly because we're yeah, kind of in the, the viewpoint of Puyi. So Jamo didn't care for the characters as much. So it's right. interesting. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much, everybody. Uh, and we thought we'd do another couple of little bits. The schedule. You are listening to Lawrence of Arabia. Of course, you just listened to Lawrence of Arabia and hopefully it's inspired you to go out and watch it again. And then on the 9th of December, the next one is Lady Jane. Lady Jane, which I'm telling you, Wolf had strong opinions on. I'm going to say no more than that. No more uh, than that. I'm not going to say anything no, either. Indeed, right, OK. And then after that, Wolf doesn't know what he's going to do. But I am planning on the Battle of Algiers. Battle of Algiers might well be then. Then I've decided on the 6th of January to do The Lion in Winter, which I can't not do it anymore. And we had a poll before we started this on the History of England Facebook site group, and everybody went potty for The Lion in Winter. It won the poll. Second was A Man for All Seasons. Remember that one? Yes. Any you thought was really boring? Yeah, okay. Well, let's hope this is, if it's better than A Man for All Seasons, <laughs> I'm excited. Very good. And then we had an idea, didn't we? Do you want to tell the world about your idea? Well, we're going to start looking into kind of a sub-series that we do over a few episodes uh, where we look at myths and legends and the kind of social history and how stories are passed down. And we're going to be looking at a few interesting topics in there. Yeah. So we're going to start off with The Witch. So I'm quite scared. But anyway, uh, and we're going to have a guest to join us, which is we're very excited about. On the 19th of January, you may or may not know that a new film on Mary Queen of Scots comes out based on John Guy's biography of that name. And John Guy is a top historian, a really great historian, actually. And we thought what we would do a couple of weeks after it comes out, which is the 3rd of February, we would give you an episode on that, but also comparing it with the 1971 film, which has Vanessa Redgrave and... Glenda Jackson? Is it Glenda Jackson? I don't know. Anyway. You, you've movie. recommended this movie. I thought, you, I thought you would not. I might have done my research. And then we're going to do another one of those things that Wolf's talking about, about uh, myths and legends. We're hoping that Glenn will come and join us to do Robin Hood. And I actually learned the other day that I think there have been 102 films made about Robin Hood since 1912. No, really? Yes, I think that's Good what I read that this it. morning. That's a popular myth, isn't it? And that leads us nicely into the last bit we thought we'd mention of all these films that have come out. So there's a new... Robin Hood movie that's just come out now in the US and the UK. Don't know if I can recommend it to anyone, but it is out. Modern sort of take on Robin Hood, isn't it? Which is great, which I think actually, you know, it's part of Robin Hood, the great thing about Robin Hood. And then, uh, but it won't be as good as Kevin Costner, obviously. And then there's The Favourite, which is a, a play about Queen Anne made into a film with some fantastic actresses reviewing really well. I think it's out in the US on the 1st of January, it's out in the UK, and I'm really sad we're not doing anything on that. It's going to be very interesting, and maybe we can uh, have a few words about it. It would be great to have a chat about it on Facebook or whatever, because I think it looks really good. And then there's the Mary Queen of Scots thing. So, we've burbled. That's it. Hope you enjoyed Lawrence of Arabia, uh, and we will see you, hopefully, for Lady Jane. Okay? Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Okay, that's very good. So that is it. There's been a kind of an emotional outpouring. I feel as though my soul has been ripped from me, Wolf. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was, the, it was that stomach rumble. It, it went silent and then... <laughs> Is that your impression of a stomach rumble? Yes. Not that great. Don't go into acting. <laughs> very good. Anyway, that was great. Thank you uh, very much, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our enormously long ramblings, actually, but great. What a film. We yes. Love it. And if you go back and watch this film, let yeah. us know. Come and tell us. All right. Bye, everybody. Are you not entertained? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.